Glad we were able to make it this time. Should have been here a couple of years ago and we got snowed out or snowed in, but we're not risking that this time. In the uh, thinking about the organization that we worked uh, together with, we're not thinking of Jehovah's heavenly arrangement, but more the earthly arrangement of uh, congregation activity with overseers, circuit overseer, district overseers, a branch office to supervise activities, as well as uh, the governing body. And we're thinking of our congregation meetings, our circuit assemblies, our district conventions, our standards of conduct, our ways of doing things. All of this is uh, identifiable all around the world because of the visible organization that we're associated with. And yet from time to time, there have been individuals who perhaps come into the organization and enjoy it for a while, and then for one reason or another, some standard of conduct or teaching or organizational procedure seems to come into conflict with some personal inclination. And then these persons may leave and then they'll argue, well, God doesn't have an organization. Jehovah doesn't need an organization. All anyone needs is a personal relationship with God. And they'll even argue that if you have an organization, then you have to have a name which identifies you and distinguishes you from others who don't uh, have that name. And you have to have doctrines which distinguish you from those who don't accept those doctrines. And you have to have membership requirements which distinguish you from others. And these people will argue that this is contrary to the Christian idea. And they may try to say, well, the word organization is not found in the translations of the Bible that we use. Well, the concept of organization is most certainly uh, found in the Bible. The uh, Hebrew language has the expression ergun, which has, to, uh, has the meaning of arranging or arranging in order. And from this Hebrew word ergun, we get a Greek word. Its basic root word in the Greek is erg. In school, we learned that was a, a unit of energy. And then we get the uh, Greek word ergon, which uh, means work. Or it could also mean an enterprise. And from there, uh, we go on to the Greek word organon, which means a tool or instrument of work. And taking the step a little bit further, we get the Greek word organesis, which, uh, from which our modern English word organization is taken. And interesting enough, if we look at Acts 5.38, Acts 5.38, where Gamaliel was warning the Sanhedrin uh, against further persecution of the apostles, he makes this statement, Acts 5.38, And so under the present circumstances, I say to you, do not meddle with these men, but let them alone, because if this scheme or this work is for men, it will be overthrown. Now here where Gamaliel uses that expression of this scheme or this work, he uses this Greek word organon, which uh, has to, or, or rather he uses the Greek word ergon, which has to do with work. But he wasn't referring to a piece of work done by the apostles, but rather the entire body and their activities as an enterprise, as an activity, or as an organization. Some may argue, why is it then, if an organization, a visible organization, is so essential and part of the restoration to true worship in the last days, uh, 
Why is it that Brother Russell and his close uh, co-workers in those early days did not see the need of a visible organization? In the Watchtower, both of 1883 and 1884, Brother Russell refers rather to the invisible unity of the anointed ones, uh, rather than to a visible, tangible organization. And in 1894, in the Watchtower of December 1st, he makes this statement, it is plain that the forming of a visible organization of the gathered out ones would be out of harmony with the spirit of the divine plan. So he seems to indicate we shouldn't have an earthly organization. And yet he goes on to say here, uh, while we do not esteem a visible organization of the gathered out ones to be a part of the Lord's plan in the harvest work, as though we expected as an organization to abide here for another age, we do esteem it to be his will that those that love the Lord should speak often to one another of their common hopes and joys or trials and perplexities, communing together concerning the precious things of his word, and so help one another and not forget the assembling of themselves together as the manner of some is, and so much the more as they see the day approaching. I see what Brother Russell was talking about here was, though we shouldn't have a visible organization, those who love the Lord should come together, talk to one another of their joys and hopes and trials and perplexities, commune together concerning the precious things of the Word, help one another, work together, and assemble together. Well, when a group of people do that sort of thing, we call it an organization. The English word organization really means the uniting together uh, actually from the word to organize, meaning to unite together all of the individual parts and unite them as a whole. And that's what we're talking about. Now, although uh, Brother Russell early did not see the need of a visible organization, uh, you might ask, well, why were they sort of against the idea? The answer is that they had only recently come free from sectarian denominations of Christendom that were both divisive and oppressive. And uh, they certainly didn't want to form just another denomination. Uh, they wanted to be free from that type of thing. And yet, as time went on, as the number of classes, uh, as we call the small groups in those years, increased in size and number spreading out throughout the United States, Canada, and to England there in the 1880s, some functions of an organization became necessary. Such simple things as who's going to conduct the meetings? How are they to be conducted? Who's going to arrange for the speakers? Who's going to arrange for the public preaching? And so it was that uh, the brothers, in seeing these problems, looked to 1 Corinthians 33 for guidance as to how the first Christian congregation carried, uh, cared for its matters. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, um, the Apostle Paul stated, God is a God not of disorder, but of peace. So now we see here, peace is the opposite of disorder. Obviously, if you're going to have peace, there has to be order or arrangement. And in verse 40, Paul stated, let all things take place decently and by arrangement. And so it was that the early classes or ecclesias of Bible students, as they were also called, began to put into operation certain features of organization. Locally, the classes had 
in many cases a sort of voluntary election of elders and deacons once a year to get men of responsibility to care for matters and they looked to the Bible house there in Pittsburgh as a sort of headquarters where the brothers there had had a greater experience in caring for the matters pertaining to the Lord's people than others and so they looked to these brothers and uh, in this way an organization began to be built up in 1909 the brothers moved the headquarters from Pittsburgh to Brooklyn New York and uh, the organization continued to grow after World War one as uh, it was seen necessary to expand the preaching of the good news of the kingdom uh, a brother in each congregation was designated service director to sort of organize and advance that feature and then other needs arose a congregation of course had to have a secretary and a treasurer but then someone was needed to supply see that the brothers had supplies of literature on hand and so a brother was designated stock servant and someone else was designated territory servant to see that the territory was properly organized and later on as we wanted to make greater use of sound equipment a brother to push the work with phonographs and sound cars was designated sound servant and then a little later on to organize public advertising of our meetings we got an advertising servant and later on when we wanted to emphasize the making of return visits then a brother was designated back call servant and later this designation included Bible study activity and so his he was termed Bible study servant so these various features of an organization were put into operation however because most all these things that I've mentioned had to do with either the business or the service function of the congregation some brothers got the idea that they r related exclusively to the service or the business of the congregation and therefore were not a spiritual feature and so it is that they would argue you don't need an organization to be a spiritual Christian and um, that uh, you can serve God without an organization and so it's good for us this evening to review a number of the things that we've learned through the years about organization and uh, take a look at the Christian congregation of the first century and see what we can learn from that now let's look up Psalm 99 1 this is a scripture that's been used many times in the watchtowers in the last 60 or 70 years indicating that Jehovah had an organization it has to do with the heavenly arrangement and if we look up here Psalm 99 and verse 1 we read Jehovah himself has become king let the peoples be agitated he is sitting upon the cherubs let the earth quiver well someone might say that doesn't seem to have much to do with organization but it does say Jehovah is seated upon the cherubs and um, it implies that uh, the cherubs had a position beneath the throne of Jehovah so it could be said as it were if one saw a vision of that it looked as though Jehovah was seated upon the cherubs but what it does show us that, that the cherubs were not just heavenly creatures running around all over heaven each one doing his own thing but they had both position and assignment and the same thing is brought out for us in Isaiah chapter 6 and uh, verses 2 and 3 where in this vision that Isaiah saw he didn't seem to mention the cherubs but uh, he mentions here in chapter 6 that he saw Jehovah uh, in the heavens Isaiah chapter 6 and he said 
uh, in verse 2, seraphs were standing above him. Well, actually, uh, we can see that Jehovah was seated upon the throne, his skirts were filling the temple, and then the cherubs were above the uh, temple there. They were above the, uh, the skirts, as it were, of Jehovah. And so as, it's as the uh, seraphs were surrounding the throne of Jehovah, again indicating position and assignment. And then going back to the Psalms again, Psalm 103 this time, uh, we have in verse 19 and 20 to 21, Jehovah himself has firmly established his throne in the very heavens, and over everything his own kingship has held domination. Bless Jehovah, O you angels of his, mighty in power, carrying out his word by listening to the voice of his word. Bless Jehovah, all you armies of his, you ministers of his, doing his will. Now, when you have a lot of angels hearing the commands or the word of Jehovah, and then each one carrying out those commands, you have, in a sense, an organization. A lot of individuals carrying out the commands of an authority. And further, it says, uh, Bless Jehovah, all you armies of his, you ministers of his, doing his will. Now, why this use of the word army? It's not to imply that the angels had military uniforms or weapons, but rather that they were organized in a harmonious way, just like a military force. It doesn't consist of a lot of individual soldiers, each one running around the battlefield doing what he thinks is right, but an army is organized, the soldiers are organized into platoons and uh, companies and regiments and divisions uh, and army groups all under various levels of authority and under the commander of the army. And so it is with the angels, the seraphs, the cherubs. They're all organized into units harmonizing uh, with one another and carrying out the instructions of the commander. Now, when Jehovah created Adam, he dealt with Adam on a one-to-one -one basis. But it does appear as though when Eve was created, Jehovah was going to deal uh, with Eve through Adam, and likely uh, through Adam with their children, and perhaps eventually as humankind multiplied, there would be other patriarchal uh, groups established by family heads. But of course Adam lost that position. So Jehovah dealt with Abel and Enoch and Noah on a one-to-one -one basis. And we read of Noah, Noah walked with God. However, when the time came for Jehovah to preserve eight human souls through the flood, he did not deal with eight individuals. He dealt through Noah with the seven others and made a provision for their salvation. Later on, he dealt with his faithful servants through the patriarchs, such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then there came the time when the twelve patriarchal tribes of the twelve sons of Israel, or Jacob, were living in slavery in Egypt, living in the land of Goshen there in the Nile Delta, and Jehovah determined to uh, deliver them from Egypt by the hand of Moses, delivered them across the Red Sea and across the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Sinai, and there Jehovah restructured them from being 12 patriarchal tribes to being one nation. And he gave them as their constitution the Ten Commandments and about 600 and some other laws 
making up what we call the law of Moses. And they had their administrative arrangements, they had their religion under the supervision of the Levite priests, they had judges, they had uh, princes, as it were, men of responsibility over various uh, numbers of people, so they had an organization. And regarding this arrangement, we can look up in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Exodus chapter 19. And uh, reading from verse 5, Jehovah said through Moses, And now if you will strictly obey my voice, and will indeed keep my covenant, then you will certainly become my special property out of all other peoples, because the whole earth belongs to me. And you yourselves will become to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, notice it wasn't Moses' idea, but Jehovah's idea for Israel to become Jehovah's chosen people, for Jehovah to be represented on the earth by one chosen people. And Jehovah didn't tell him, if you keep my law, you'll be my servants just like a lot of other people in the earth. But he said here in verse 5, you will become my special property. And verse 6, you yourselves will become to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Jehovah selected them as his earthly organization, a body of people who were to keep his laws and whom he separated from all other peoples. Now, he led them into the promised land, uh, put, up, put into operation a theocratic form of direction. They didn't always follow it. Sometimes they were unfaithful. Jehovah allowed them to uh, uh, be oppressed by their enemies. He warned them and admonished them through his prophets. He chastened them and disciplined them and delivered them and dealt with them as his chosen people for 15 centuries. But they were his visible organization. Now the time came when he sent his son Christ Jesus to earth to uh, be the promised Messiah and the people of Israel rejected him. And so uh, Jehovah rejected them and this was expressed through the words of Jesus there in Matthew 21 verse 43 where he said the kingdom of God has been taken from you and given to a people producing the fruits thereof now Jehovah hadn't given up the idea of a chosen people to represent him a visible organization Jesus didn't say the kingdom of God is to be taken from you and given to a lot of individuals each of whom has a personal relationship with God but he said given to a people producing the fruits thereof and as we know, that people mentioned really was the Christian congregation. Now, when Jesus already uh, was gathering his disciples together, he was uh, training them to work as a body, not as individuals. He even said to them in John 10 that they were like sheep in a sheepfold under his supervision as a shepherd. And in John 21, he told the apostles, to shepherd his sheep and to feed his sheep. Well, a shepherd keeps the sheep united, feeds them and, and protects them in a united way. <clears throat> On one occasion, we can read about this in Matthew chapter 20 and reading from verse 25. On one occasion, the two sons of Zebedee uh, got ambitions to have a preferred position above uh, their brothers. And uh, the apostles got quite irritated about that uh, presumptuousness. But uh, Jesus called them all together, and reading from the latter part of verse 25, Jesus said, 
You know that the rulers of the nations lord it over them, and the great men wield authority over them. This is not the way among you, but whoever wants to become great among you must be your minister, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. So note here, Jesus didn't say that there wouldn't be any supervisory arrangement among his disciples, but he laid down the principles that should determine how that supervisory activity would be carried out, not by bosses and masters and lords, but by men who would be slaves and servants of the others. And those who would have greater responsibility, as Jesus said here, had to become the ministers or the servants of others. Jesus also illustrated his followers as members of a household. Uh, in Matthew 24, they're speaking about the faithful and discreet slave. He talks about a slave appointed to feed his fellow slaves in this household of God. Then, shortly before he ascended to heaven, Jesus said there in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, Go and make disciples of people of all the nations, teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded you. Well, now, the things that Jesus commanded them would include the need of their being united as sheep in one fold, the need of their loving one another, the need of their being united in Christ like branches in the vine. Well, now, did, this, did this actually take place in the first century? Well, yes, it did. And we have the account of this in the book of Acts. Now, some time ago, uh, it's about three to four years ago now, in the Theocratic Ministry School, we read through the book of Acts in the course of a few weeks and discussed it. But uh, sometime after this talk, I'd like to encourage everyone here to sit down and spend the it's not too long a time. It'll take you to read through the book of Acts at one sitting because then you get the full impact of Acts, the way the Christian congregation was founded and built up and organized, and, and you see these things. Now, this evening, we're going to go through a number of points from the book of Acts. You may choose to note down the chapter and verse and a few other references that I use. Then you can use this material also with others that you may talk with. But turning now to the book of Acts, chapter 1, that's where Jesus' apostles ask him there in verse 6 if he was going to restore the kingdom at that time. And he says in verse 7, it doesn't belong to you to get knowledge of the times or seasons which the Father has placed in his own jurisdiction. In other words, don't be concerned about that. But now here's what you are to be concerned about. Verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit arrives upon you and you will be witnesses of me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the most distant parts of the earth. So here Jesus told them they were to be witnesses. And then he told them to wait in Jerusalem until they got Holy Spirit. And then he ascended out of their sight. So now chapter 2 tells about them being gathered together in the same place, the same people, about 120. And Holy Spirit came upon them manifested in two ways by tongues of flame that appeared above the heads of everyone present and by their all speaking about the magnificent things of God in many different languages. And so, of course, the Jews heard about this taking place and thousands of them gathered together to find out what's going on. They even thought these men must be drunk. And uh, Peter says, no. He said, uh, after all, he said, it's only the third hour of the day. So he uses that as an argument. And then he goes on to show what you've observed here is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, 
where Jehovah said, In the last days I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and they'll all prophesy, men and women, young and old. And he further went on to tie it in with the resurrection of Jesus. He said, Now the fact that we have Holy Spirit is proof that the one whom you killed has also been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, and is indeed the Messiah. And he goes on to show that in this Psalm 16 was fulfilled, where um, Jehovah had said, that uh, he would not leave his uh, Holy One uh, in Hades or allow his flesh to see corruption. And then Peter added, in addition, Psalm 110 has been fulfilled. Jehovah said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I place your enemies as a stool for your feet. And summing it all up, Peter says here in chapter 2, verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for a certainty that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you impaled. Well, they were certainly stabbed to the heart here, and they wanted to know what to do. And Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent, and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. Well, what happened? Well, if we read verse 41, it says, Therefore, those who embraced his word heartily were baptized, and on that day about 3,000 souls were added. Added to what? Added to just a lot of individuals uh, who believed in Jesus? No. These 3,000 were added to the 120 disciples that had already received Holy Spirit, and they became a united body of 3,120 or thereabouts. And we read further in verse 42, they continued devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to sharing with one another, to taking of meals and to prayers. Remember what some of those who argue against an organization say that you have to have doctrines which distinguish you from others well here they had teachings of the apostles that they held to and they were united also in their prayers and in sharing with one another we read in verse 46 day after day they were in constant accord attendance at the temple with one accord now, with one accord means they were united. They had the same mind, the same line of thinking. And verse 47 says they were praising God and finding favor with all the people. At the same time, Jehovah continued to join to them daily those being saved. <clears throat> well, now, in chapter 3, we read how Peter and John healed a man uh, that was lame from his mother's womb and uh, used the opportunity to explain about the resurrection of Jesus and how they should look forward to uh, his return. And then moving on to chapter 4, we read that the chief priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees didn't like this. They were annoyed because they were teaching the Christ, and so they laid hands on the apostles and put them in custody until the next day. And verse 4 of chapter 4 says, However, Many of those who had listened to the speech believed, and the number of the men became about 5,000. The fact that they had the number indicates an organizational feature here, too. They knew who to count, and they were uh, visibly united. Now, chapter 4 goes on to show that uh, these uh, men, these rulers of the Sanhedrin and other religious leaders, warned the apostles to quit speaking in the name of Jesus. In verse 19 here, Peter and John said, Whether it is righteous in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God judge for yourselves, but as for us, we cannot stop speaking about the things we have seen and heard. So they threatened them and then released them. Well, they went back to preaching. And chapter 5 tells about how they were 
arrested again and then threatened with their lives and in, urged to stop preaching. And then they said, we ought to obey God as ruler rather than men. So they set down the principle of operation that was going to identify not them as individuals, but the entire body of believers making up the congregation. Now, moving on to chapter 6, we get another insight into the way they functioned as a united body or as an organization. We read in verse 1 of chapter 6, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing, a murmuring arose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews against the Hebrew-speaking Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now that doesn't seem like any great problem of doctrine or great issue there, but as we know back in Israel in those days, they didn't have social security or widow pensions, and yet it had always been a part of true worship to look after the fatherless and the widows. And here they were doing it in the Christian congregation. And uh, for some reason, this congregation was made up, of course, of Jews, circumcised Jews. Some were Greek-speaking, some were Hebrew-speaking. And the Greek-speaking ones felt that their widows were not getting a fair share. And so, how did the apostles respond to this situation, the Twelve? Did they say, oh, don't bother us with such worldly things? No, they didn't. And yet, notice what they said here. They saw that this situation could create disunity in the congregation. So in verse 2 it says, The twelve called the multitude of the disciples to them and said, It is not pleasing for us to leave the word of God to distribute food to tables. So, brothers, search out for yourselves seven certified men from among you, full of spirit and wisdom, that we may appoint them over this necessary business. But we shall devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here the apostles drew on principles from the Hebrew scriptures that in selecting men of responsibility, they had to be, as he says here, certified, that is, having a, a reputation for dealing wisely, men of wisdom, uh, men who have applied God's word and full of God's spirit. Now, verse 5 says, the thing spoken was pleasing to the whole multitude, and now we have here a list of the men that were appointed, another organizational feature. They selected Stephen, a man full of faith and Holy Spirit, Philip and uh, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, and we learn he was a proselyte of Antioch. And they placed them before the apostles, and after having prayed, these laid their hands upon them. So they selected these men... Organizationally, they laid their hands on them as a visible sign of empowering them for the job, and they prayed to God. So it was an arrangement within the Christian congregation. And verse 7 says, Consequently, the word of God went on growing, and the number of disciples kept multiplying in Jerusalem very much, and a great crowd of priests began to be obedient to the faith. So Jehovah blessed this arrangement. And uh, they were strengthened in that the apostles acted as a supervisory governing body to care for their needs. Now chapter 7 tells us about one of these food servers by the name of Stephen. He was an eloquent preacher as well and he aroused the ire of the Jews and they stoned him to death. And then chapter 8 tells the latter part of verse 1, on that day great persecution arose against the congregation that was in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. 
And you notice something that was said here in verse 1? Great persecution arose against the congregation. Now this word congregation uh, is from the Greek word ekklesia. Uh, originally it was used in the Septuagint version referring to the nation of Israel as God's congregation or ecclesia in the wilderness. Now for the first time this word is used by Luke in the account of Acts as referring to the body of believers in Christ Jesus. It was called a congregation. Well, verse 4 says, those who had been scattered went throughout the land declaring the good news of the word. And then there was one another one of those food servers, Philip, who was so zealous in preaching, he was called Philip the evangelizer or good news preacher. He went down to Samaria and he got very good results there. Quite a few people became believers. Now, what do you think that the apostles in Jerusalem thought about that? Philip, going down there to Samaria, uh, to uh, these people who were circumcised but were not uh, Jews or offspring of Abraham. So they figure, well, let, uh, let Philip organize his own church down there and form his own denomination. Or did they say, well, it's, it's all right to have a Samaritan church as well as a Jewish church? No, they didn't look at it that way. Looking down to verse 14 of chapter 8, we read, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they dispatched Peter and John to them, and these went down and prayed for them to get Holy Spirit. For it had not yet fallen upon any one of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they went laying their hands upon them, and they began to receive Holy Spirit. So again, the apostles showed an interest as supervisors of the preaching work to see to it that two of their number went down there to Samaria, helped these people get Holy Spirit and strengthened them spiritually. And uh, verse 25 says, when Peter and John had given the witness thoroughly and had spoken the word of Jehovah, they turned back to Jerusalem and they went declaring the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. An interesting little in, uh, sideline here is that uh, Philip then was directed by Jehovah's angel to take, go down to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, a desert road, and there he saw a man riding a chariot and it turned out to be a court official of the Ethiopian Queen Candace. And uh, this man, uh, uh, the uh, court official, was uh, apparently, he was a Jewish proselyte and had been to Jerusalem, and he was reading the prophecy of Isaiah. So Philip had the opportunity to get up into the chariot, explain to him what it meant, and then baptize this man who became likely the first African convert to Christianity. Now, chapter 9 tells us about Saul of Tarsus, who had um, uh, persecuted the Christian congregation, and then on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus, he became converted to Christ, because he was a sincere man. And then moving along in the latter part of chapter 9, we find that Peter is over in Joppa, uh, witnessing there on the Mediterranean sea coast. And then chapter 10 tells us about this, um, or this Italian uh, army officer, Cornelius, uh, and uh, Jehovah's angel directed Peter to go up from Joppa to Caesarea to witness to Cornelius and his family and friends. And here, Peter uh, was astounded as he was in the home of the uncircumcised. These people began to speak in tongues. In other words, even before they were baptized, they got Holy Spirit. Well, it's obvious because Peter would never have dared baptize 
uncircumcised persons otherwise. He even says himself, can we forbid water to these who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, even as we ourselves have? So they spoke in tongues, they got Holy Spirit, they were baptized. Well, then chapter 11 tells us about Peter coming back uh, to uh, Jer Jerusalem, and then he had to render an account of what he was doing in the home of the uncircumcised. And finally, when they heard about it all, in verse 18, they said, well then, God has granted repentance for the purpose of life to people of the nations also. So they were quite satisfied at that result. But now let's see what happens from verse 19. Consequently, those who had been scattered by the tribulation that arose over Stephen went through as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, but speaking the word to no one except to Jews only. However, out of them there were some men of Cyprus and Serena that came to Antioch and began talking to the Greek-speaking people, declaring the good news of the Lord Jesus. Furthermore, the hand of Jehovah was with them, and a great number that became believers turned to the Lord. So now again we have this case, non-circumcised, Greek-speaking people of the nations up there in Syrian Antioch turning to the truth. Well, what did the apostles in Jerusalem say about that again? Did they say, as some clergyman today might have said, well, Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many mansions, so that must mean there's room for plenty of different church denominations. Let them develop their own churches according to their own local culture. No, they didn't say that. Notice what we read in verse 22. The account about them got to the ears of the congregation that was in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the undeserved kindness of God, he rejoiced, and began to encourage them all to continue in the Lord with hearty purpose. For he was a good man and full of Holy Spirit and of faith, and a considerable crowd was added to the Lord. Well, there was such a great crowd, Barnabas couldn't handle that. So he went up to Tarsus and looked for an earlier acquaintance, Saul, and brought him back to Antioch there in Syria. And we read in verse 26, the latter part, it thus came about that for a whole year they gathered together with them in the congregation and taught quite a crowd. And it was first in Antioch that the disciples were by divine providence called Christians. And this is sort of an interesting thing here. Here was the first time that <clears throat> the disciples seemed to have an identity, a name that identified them all. Remember, some who argue against an organization say you have to have a name. Well, that's true. And these got a name, Christian. Now, most historians and theologians say that the name Christian was a name of reproach that enemies put upon these disciples. But the New World Translation takes into consideration that in writing this account, Luke did not use the secular word for called, which is Kriya in the Greek language, which he would have used if it had been opposers that had called them that. But he used the Greek word krematizo, which is always used in connection with a divine calling or a divine warning from Jehovah. And so we have it in the New World Translation. The disciples were by divine providence called Christians. And apparently Jehovah wanted now these disciples to be identified by something that was of great significance at that time, namely the fact that Jesus had come and was the Messiah or the Christ, so these people were named Messiahists or Christians. Now moving along to chapter 13, we uh, find a little more about the congregation in Antioch. Verse 1 says, Now in Antioch 
there were prophets and teachers in the local congregation. And we have the names of these men, Barnabas, as well as Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Serena, Manon, who was educated with Herod, the district ruler, and Saul. Now, we read as they were publicly ministering to Jehovah and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, of all persons, set Barnabas and Saul apart for me for the work to which I have called them. Then they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them and let them go. So Jehovah's Spirit now directed the congregation to send Saul and Barnabas out to a special work. And we was. These men immediately traveled overland from Antioch to Seleucia, a coastal village on the Mediterranean, and they sailed off to Cyprus, landing in Salamis, and they traveled overland on Cyprus, witnessing there, and came to the capital, Paphos, and even witnessed to the proconsul Sergius Paulus, whom uh, Luke uh, reminds us was an intelligent man, and he came into the truth there. And then after witnessing there, uh, Barnabas and uh, Saul traveled then uh, from sailed from Paphos up to Asia Minor, or now Turkey, and arrived at Perga in Pamphylia, and witnessing there, they moved on to Antioch, another town by that name, Antioch, but this time in the area of Pisidia, called Pisidian Antioch. And they witnessed there, got good results, also were persecuted, and they moved on from Antioch to another nearby town, Iconium, and they moved on from there to uh, Lystra and to Derby. Derby, we remember, is where Timothy was from. Now, moving along in chapter 14, we read that Saul and Barnabas decided to return to these four cities where they had gathered together groups of disciples and uh, strengthened them. And uh, verses uh, 21 to 22 tell about that strengthening. And then verse 23 of chapter 14 says, Moreover, they appointed older men for them in each congregation. And offering prayer and fastings, they committed them to Jehovah, in whom they had become believers. So this is interesting. They appointed older men. Now this use of the word uh, older men from the Greek word presbytery, or presbyteros in the singular, this expression was also used in ancient Israel, referring to men of responsibility, indicating that they had to be men of maturity and experience and they were called elders or presbytery. And this wasn't just a human idea that Paul and Barnabas had. We read that in connection with appointing these men, they offered prayer, and they fasted, and they committed them to Jehovah in whom they had become believers. So it wasn't just some little human arrangement. It was part of the congregation arrangement under Jehovah's direction, and they committed the entire arrangement the congregation and its elders to Jehovah. Well, chapter 15 tells how they came back then to Jerusalem and uh, Antioch, and then they had to go to Jerusalem to settle that question of circumcision. Chapter 16 tells us about their second uh, missionary tour up overland through Asia Minor, and then they went through Greece, came back to Jerusalem, and uh, then they went out on a third trip, this time spending a couple of years in Ephesus and then going on through Greece again. And going up now to chapter 20 of Acts, we find that they're on their way back to Jerusalem, and Paul wanted to strengthen the elders in Ephesus, but he didn't have time to do that and get back to Jerusalem in time for a certain festival. So he sails in, after sailing into this village of Miletus there, they 
send word up to the elders in Ephesus to come down. And in chapter 20, from verse 18, we have Paul's admonition to these elders. But I'm going to concentrate on verse 28. Paul states to these elders, pay attention, this is chapter 20, verse 28, pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has appointed you overseers to shepherd the congregation of God which he purchased with the blood of his own Son. Now here we see, first of all, that this congregation or body of disciples that these men were elders for is called a flock. And they are also appointed to that assignment by Holy Spirit. And further, they were assigned as overseers to shepherd the congregation of God. So it was God's arrangement. It wasn't just man's idea or something Paul thought would be a good idea to get them together. It was God's arrangement. And he calls these elders by another term this time, overseers, using the Greek word episkopi, or in the singular, episkopos. Now this word episkopos is taken from two Greek words, episcopus. And the word epi meaning over or through, and scopus meaning view. If you've ever seen a projector that uh, with lights and mirrors can lift up the image of a page and project it over the heads of an audience to a screen, that projector is called an episcope. It's from the same two Greek words, episcopus, and it referred not to the maturity or experience these men should have, but rather to the area of their assignment. They had to have an overview of the needs of God's people and look after them. They were overseers, episcopi. And here Paul emphasized that they were appointed to this by God. Now, he spent a great deal of time educating Timothy and Titus also in exercising care in selecting these men who were to supervise the congregation. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, for example, Paul advised Timothy uh, very carefully of all the scriptural qualifications that these overseers and ministerial servants should have. And then in chapter 14 of 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15, Paul states, I'm writing you these things, though I'm hoping to come to you shortly, but in case I am delayed, that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in God's household, which is the congregation of the living God, a pillar and support of the truth. So notice Paul didn't imply that the congregation, well, it was all right, and there could be people in the congregation, but you didn't have to have it. He said here to Timothy, that in the congregations where he was appointing overseers and ministerial servants, it was God's household, it was the congregation of the living God and a pillar and support of the truth. So it showed it was of great significance spiritually to them. Now this wasn't only Paul's viewpoint. The Apostle Peter, in his first letter in chapter uh, 5, counsels in the same way. Uh, Tim... Paul, or Peter rather, directs his letter to the Christians spread around, some of whom were in these congregations where Paul and Barnabas earlier had appointed elders. And after giving general counsel to the congregation for four chapters, we come to chapter 5 where Peter then directs attention to the elders. He says, To the older men among you I give this exhortation, for I too am an older man. And then in verses 2 and 3, shepherd the flock of God in your care, not under compulsion, but willingly, neither for love of dishonest gain, but eagerly, neither is lording it over those who are God's inheritance, but becoming examples 
to the flock. So here, the congregation, again, that these men were responsible for was the flock of God and God's inheritance. And verse 4, he shows that their relationship with God would be affected by the way they cared for the congregation. For Peter says, when the chief shepherd has been made manifest, you will receive the unfadable crown of glory. So we're beginning to see here that this spiritual arrangement back there included a congregation arrangement with appointed elders or overseers. Now, turning to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, we have it emphasized again by Paul. Hebrews 13, 17, Paul writes, Be obedient to those who are taking the lead among you and be submissive, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will render an account. So now these men who are taking the lead among them, the overseers and the elders, they were to be submissive to these men. And Paul says they are keeping watch over your souls. So they had a responsibility spiritually. And then he says they're men who will render an account. And then he shows that the congregation's relationship with God could be affected by the way they respected this arrangement. Because he says, see that they may do this with joy and not with sighing, for this would be damaging to you. So we see here this visible arrangement, the Christian congregation in the first century under the supervisory care of elders or overseers. Now, some... You often ask this question, but couldn't God have uh, deal with his people in another way? Does he have to have an organization? Well, it's not so much a question of what God could do. It's really more a question of what he has done and is doing that we need to be concerned with. And the purpose of the congregation arrangement is outlined for us by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, which we might turn to chapter 4 of uh, the letter to the Ephesians. Paul outlines here, as we know, the one faith, one spirit, one Lord, and so on, the unity of the Christian disciples. And then, interesting enough, in verse 8, he refers to Psalm 68, almost seemingly out of context, because this refers to Jehovah ascending ahead of David up to Mount Zion. And then when David went up there and, and captured uh, Jerusalem from the Jebusites, he took these Jebusites captives. And uh, some of them he gave as slaves in tabernacle service. And so Psalm 68 says, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts in men. Now, Paul goes on to say here that this really refers to Christ Jesus. And when he ascended on high, he also gave gifts in men. But he didn't give war captives as slaves to the tabernacle. Verse 11 of chapter 4 says, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelizers, some as shepherds and teachers, with a view to the readjustment of the holy ones for the ministerial work, for the building up of the body of the Christ until we all attain to the oneness in the faith and in the accurate knowledge of the Son of God, to a full-grown man, to the measure of stature that belongs to the fullness of the Christ. So there are three reasons outlined here for the congregation arrangement with its apostles, prophets, evangelizers, shepherds, and teachers. The first outlined in verse 12 is with a view to readjusting the holy ones 
for the work of the ministry. Now, it's true, Christians back there could be impelled by Holy Spirit and the scriptures to go out and, and witness and preach, but it does seem as though the congregation arrangement with overseers taking the lead really readjusted them for this work of the ministry. Some might even say today, oh, well, you don't have to be in an organization to go out and preach. Uh, they say, I'll, I'm just going to serve God and be a good Christian, and as the occasion arises, I'll also give a witness. But those who leave the organization, it seems as though the occasion doesn't arise very often, because if they're not inactive before, they become inactive after they leave contact with the organization, and only very, very few manage to muster up a little effort to go around trying to break down the faith of others, but there's no public witnessing to the kingdom of God. Now, the second reason is given here in verse 13, until we all for the building up of the body of the Christ until we all attain to the oneness of the faith and in the accurate knowledge of the Son of God. Now, we know back there that the Christians who had Holy Spirit and the Scriptures were still brought to greater knowledge of the truth and accuracy and unity by means of the letters of the apostles and others and by means of qualified overseers in the congregations. And so it is today, the unity of God's people, our accurate understanding of the Bible, our being united all over the world, is greatly aided by the visible organization with the Watchtower magazine, with the congregation arrangement and qualified elders. And the third thing, until we grow to a full-grown man, to the measure of stature that belongs to the fullness of the Christ, seems to refer more to our, our insight, our uh, desire to copy Christ Jesus, our devotion in regard to such matters as uh, zeal for Jehovah, uh, our respect for the sacredness of life and the sacredness of blood, our uh, respect for the holiness or high moral standards that are required. So the organization arrangement aids us in all these ways. Now, in verse 14, Paul outlines what would happen to us if we didn't stick with this organization with its shepherds and teachers and evangelizers. Notice what he says. In order that we should no longer be babes, tossed about us by waves, and carried hither and thither by every wind of teaching, by means of the trickery of men, by means of cunning in contriving error. So Paul indicates that if we were to leave the organization, we'd be like babes out at sea, tossed about by waves and winds, by trickery of men, and by cunning in contriving error. So he indicates the need of being together. Now there's another reason why we need to be united in a congregation. We're learning something very vital as Christians. The Apostle Paul wrote, continue putting up with one another, freely forgiving one another if anyone has a cause for complaint against one another. And then there's the one, if the man doesn't love his brother, how can he say he loves God, and so on. So by our coming together in the congregation, we learn to love one another, we learn to put up with one another, and we learn to forgive one another. As it so happens, sometimes uh, uh, others will offend us or give us cause for complaint. And on rare occasions, we might even give others a cause for complaint. And uh, so it is, there's a need for forgiveness. And it's by coming together in the congregation. This is not something we can learn by sitting at home, reading our Bible, and praying to God. We can't learn this by taking a correspondence course and then getting a diploma saying, now you've become a Christian and learn to forgive one another. It's only by coming together in the congregation and learning to forgive, 
learning to ask for forgiveness and learning to show mercy and to forgive. We learn that by coming together. And we learn also from the spiritual gifts of everyone in the congregation. And for this reason, Paul writes in verses 15 and 16, speaking the truth, let us by love grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. From him all the body, by being harmoniously joined together and being made to cooperate through every joint that gives what is needed according to the functioning of each respective member in due measure, makes for the growth of the body, for the building up of itself in love. So from this we can see the uh, need of coming together. Those who just feel all they need is a relationship with Jehovah, they don't have to come together with anybody they don't want to, and they don't have to put up with anybody, but those of us who come in the congregation need to learn that. Well, so much for the congregation of the first century. We know that after the death of the apostles, the great apostasy or falling away came. And uh, as uh, Jesus explained it, uh, there was like a field which had been planted with wheat now being oversold with weeds. And he said that the weeds would dominate this field until the time of the end. Paul said that the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, would dominate this religious scene until the uh, manifestation of our Lord. But Jesus also foretold in the last days that angels would sort out the weeds and the wheat would be brought into the kingdom of heaven, uh, that is, the uh, storehouse, and let its light shine. So this indicated a restoration of true worship and uh, that uh, as a collective group in the restoration of worship, they would let their light shine. Well, Jehovah's Witnesses claim that our organization and our activities today represent that restoration of true worship and uh, that it's through this means that Jehovah is uh, restoring true worship. But we might go back a hundred years ago or so to the modern organization of Jehovah's people and see how it has been built up. In the 1870s, most churches of Christendom had lost sight of the uh, messianic expectations and the hope of the return of the Lord and figured, well, we'll just have our church members be a part of this world and look forward to going to heaven. But there were those who didn't uh, agree with that. Jesus had said to his disciples, keep on the watch because you don't know at what hour your master will arrive. And so different places, groups of people would come together and study the Bible to search out information about the return of our Lord. And one group that did this was out there in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, Charles Russell and some of his friends. And through a searching of the scriptures, they learned basic truths, such as there was no trinity, but uh, Jehovah is the almighty God and creator of heaven and earth. Christ Jesus, his first creation and only begotten son and Holy Spirit was the invisible active force of God. That the soul is not immortal, but mortal. And the hope for the dead lies in a resurrection from the dead. The punishment for the incorrigibly wicked is not uh, torment, but everlasting destruction. They also saw from the scriptures that God's purpose was to restore the earth to a paradise and to give the offspring of Adam and Eve an opportunity to get life on earth through the ransom of his son, Christ Jesus. And in connection with carrying out this purpose, he was going to redeem from earth 144,000 men and women who would be joint heirs with Christ Jesus in the kingdom. And finally, uh, they saw that uh, the uh, return or presence of our Lord was to be invisible 
uh, were a demonstration of his power and that the times of the Gentiles, this period when uh, God's authority uh, was not represented by any government toward the earth, a period from 607 uh, B.C. to 1914 A.D., that this time for the Gentiles would end in 1914 with the establishment of God's kingdom in heavens. Well, now, here Brother Russell had what you might say all the necessary doctrines and teachings to form his own organization and proclaim himself the prophet. But he didn't do that. He had no ambitions to form a big organization. He called all of the Protestant clergymen of the Pittsburgh area together, presented to them these truths that I've outlined for you, and urged them to use their means to preach these things to others. Well, they just laughed and mocked and went their way, just like uh, clergymen would do today. And so Brother Russell and his friends now had the decision, what are we going to do? They had not found any church group that was really engaged in, in searching the scriptures for this information regarding the return of our Lord. So they determined that they were going to continue to work in the Lord's vineyard or to continue to feed the flock. That is, they would search the scriptures, they would provide material for those interested in it uh, in the way of printed material and try to prepare them spiritually for the return of the, uh, return of the Lord. And then they would allow the Lord to decide to what extent he would use them. And so they arranged for the publishing of the Watchtower magazine from 1879. And uh, in 1881, they formed a society, Zion's Watchtower and Track Society, to see that the work uh, continued on, not dependent on any individual. And this uh, corporation, this association, became incorporated in 1884. They began publishing books. And then they needed to expand the work, so they built larger quarters in Pittsburgh, a four-story building which had housing, eating facilities, office facilities, a meeting hall, a little shipping, and a printery. And this building became called the Bible House. And from there, material was sent out to all of the ecclesias or classes of Bible students uh, around the world. And uh, all of these different ecclesias or groups they managed their own affairs by means of elective elders, but they looked to the brothers in Pittsburgh as a sort of governing body, men who had greater experience in dealing with the Lord's work. They received watchtower and other study material from them. They received visiting speakers known as pilgrims. If they had any problems, well, then they wrote to the brothers in Pittsburgh to help them. It became a common term among the brothers, if you wanted something from the, uh, the Lord's organization, let's write to the Bible house about the matter and get their counsel. Uh, the arrangement for elders and deacons in the congregation was put into operation in all congregations. November 15, 1895 Watchtower, prior it had been just scattered here and there, and the Watchtower article decently and in order inaugurated this system in all congregations and urged the brothers to use spiritual qualifications rather than personal popularity as a basis for electing elders. And something interesting was taking place, even as the Pittsburgh congregation earlier, all of the other groups began to follow the custom that when they elected their elders once a year, they also elected Brother Russell to be the shepherd or pastor of their congregation, so he would have the right and authority to visit their congregation any time he saw fit and to bring in order any matters that he felt necessary. And from this custom, uh, Brother Russell began to be called Pastor Russell, which continued with him until his death. However, this 
did not continue on with Brother Russell's successor, Brother Rutherford. So this is the early period of the organization. The brothers moved to New York in 1909. In 1916, Brother Russell died, and Brother Rutherford became president of the Watchtower Society and took great initiative in organizing the expanding of the preaching work. And this continued on as many groups were organized and a congregational arrangement was set up with uh, uh, servants or overseers to expand the work. In 1942, Brother Rutherford uh, died, and Brother Knorr became president for the Watchtower Society, and uh, further initiative was shown in putting into operation educational features in all the congregations. Um, theocratic Ministry School was organized, the Gilead Missionary School, the New World Translation uh, came as an instrument to aid the advancing of the preaching work around the world. And so it is today we have 48,000 congregations in uh, 204 countries around the world and uh, 94 branch offices supervising the activities of Jehovah's people. And we get great benefit from this arrangement today. Now there's one aspect I'd like to mention before concluding the talk, and that is the fact that the organization is theocratic. Some want to know, what does that mean? Well, the word theocratic literally means God-directed. And uh, in 1938, this began to be emphasized more in the Watchtower, and Brother Rutherford explained that many of the congregation activities were, had still been directed by a sort of a democratic voting arrangement. But he said in the Christian congregation, the thrust of authority should not come from the masses of the people upward, as in a democratic arrangement, but should come downward from Jehovah God through Christ Jesus to the congregation in a theocratic or God-directed way. Well, some might wonder about the need of that, and others, I remember back in 1938 when this was emphasized in the Watchtower, some complained and said, oh, that's just Brother Rutherford who wants to take on more power and authority for himself. Well, that wasn't the case. When Brother Rutherford and Brother Knorr and others since have emphasized the theocratic direction, it's because they wanted to confirm that every effort would be put forth to see that the entire organization would be subject to Jehovah, to Christ Jesus, and in submission to Bible direction as the highest authority on earth. And secondly, they wanted to uh, ensure that nothing or no individual would hinder the full flow of all the benefits of teaching and procedures of theocratic organization out to everyone everywhere. You see, if we didn't have theocratic organization, the faithful and discreet slave could establish certain principles of operation or moral standards, and then the local body of elders in a congregation might say, well, we don't agree with that. We're not going to apply that here. Or even a whole country, a branch might say, well, that doesn't apply here. We have a different culture, so we don't need to apply that here. And so it is you have uh, when the Pope uh, established uh, the view of the church, uh, Catholic Church some years ago, on uh, uh, his, in his declaration on uh, humane vita uh, as to uh, birth control, well, the head of the Catholic Church in Denmark said, well, the Pope, he's got the right to his own opinion just like anybody else, which meant that the Catholic Church in Denmark wasn't going to follow that rule. So here they, they have disunity. Now, if different countries and different congregations could decide for themselves what they would accept and what they would reject of teaching and standards of conduct, it wouldn't be very long until the congregation was divided and no longer had a united identity and no longer stood out as a people holy. Uh, for God and zealous for fine works. 
But by having theocratic direction, then everyone everywhere would get the same instruction. Well, now, one of the areas which I'll use as an example was the way the Watchtower study was conducted. Prior to 1938, the Watchtower study conductor was selected by a committee elected by the congregation. And so he sort of felt more responsible to the congregation and perhaps free to decide for himself. And so many Watchtower study conductors, they at least varied a great deal in the way they conducted the study. Some spent a lot of time giving their own comments and their own ideas, bringing in a lot of other material, often fogging up the study rather than clarifying things, uh, using other scriptures and other viewpoints. And perhaps they allowed other brothers in their comments to dominate the Watchtower study. The result was... They, they spent a couple of hours covering a few paragraphs and still not getting the essence of what was there. Other congregations would move along faster and they would get a year ahead of the others in their watchtower study. So Brother Rutherford in 1938 explained, now all congregations are going to study the exact same uh, assignment wherever they are. And the study conductor now being appointed by the Society for the Faithful and Discreet Slave is responsible to the Society to see that the study is conducted according to its instructions. He should see that the material in those columns and pages is brought out for the benefit of the brothers, that those explanations and those scriptures are used and not a lot of other uh, differing and conflicting information. Well, I remember uh, when that came out, some brothers complained too and says, oh, we're being throttled or we're being muzzled or we're being choked off. We can't let Holy Spirit uh, operate through us. But actually, this arrangement was unifying the Watchtower studies <coughs> and hindering individuals from making the Watchtower study a forum for their own ideas. And now it was theocratic all over the world. So this has been a great help. And uh, many things like this can be used as an example of uh, the benefits of theocratic organization. Otherwise, it could be that a body of elders or a branch committee or a branch overseer in a particular country could get the idea that some particular thing uh, they don't like, so they're not going to follow it in their country, and then you lose the unity of God's people. And this is something interesting uh, uh, that uh, can take place. In First uh, Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul outlines very definitely that they were not masters. He said, let a man so appraise us as being subordinates of Christ and stewards of sacred secrets of God. Besides, in this case, what is looked for in stewards is for a man to be found faithful. So they were subordinates and stewards. In verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul says, what is Apollos? Yes, what is Paul? Ministers through whom you became believers, even as the Lord granted each one. So Paul emphasizes that they were ministers. The same thing is true of <clears throat> Brother Russell, Brother Rutherford, Brother Knorr, uh, Brother Franz, uh, other members of the governing body. Uh, when they work to emphasize the matter of theocratic direction, they're not masters over our faith, but they're ministers or servants who have made their contribution so that the truth has come out everywhere so that you and I could become believers. That's the thrust of what Paul says here. And he goes on in verse 21 to say, Hence let no one be boasting in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word of life or death or things now here or things to come. All things belong to you. In turn, you belong to Christ. 
and Christ in turn belongs to God. And what he's getting at here is because of the theocratic arrangement, all things are beneficial for us. We don't have to have a, a special favorite among a, a circuit overseer or a district overseer or our brother in the branch office and the service department to see to it that we get justice and righteousness and get cared for because the whole organization belongs to us. Paul says everything belongs to you. And he says, you in turn belong to Christ, and Christ in turn belongs to God. So the whole theocratic organization is set up and structured to be of service to you and I so that we can get the spiritual instruction we need. If we need correction or discipline or chastening, we get that as well. And we also get uh, uh, encouragement to uh, have a share in the preaching work. Now, I spent most of the time this evening dealing <clears throat> with the historical congregation of the first century and then some with the modern congregation. But I haven't spent uh, any time really showing the evidence that Jehovah's Witnesses are indeed God's people. There is lots of evidence on that. If I were to start presenting it all, it would take another hour and 15 minutes. So you don't have to worry. I'm not going to do that tonight. But uh, just briefly, we know that one thing, the worldwide unity of Jehovah's Witnesses, that we constitute an international brotherhood is one evidence. The zeal for preaching the kingdom, the zeal for upholding Jehovah's name, the uh, <clears throat> counsel that we get against materialism, the freedom that we have from superstition and from spiritism, the holiness or clean moral standard that Jehovah's people have all over the world, the neutrality that we have, these are some of the things that indicate and prove that Jehovah's Witnesses are indeed representing God, they are his witnesses, they are his people, and this organization that serves our interests is indeed not of men but of God. And in conclusion, I'd like to have you follow along as I read Psalm 122, which, uh, where David is really talking about the city of Jerusalem. But as we know, a city is an organized arrangement for people to live together. And so what applies to a city will also apply to an organization. And David stated here, I rejoiced when they were saying to me, to the house of Jehovah, let us go. Our feet prove to be standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is one that is built like a city that has been joined together in oneness to which the tribes have gone up, the tribes of Jah, as a reminder to Israel to give thanks to the name of Jehovah. And from verse 6, Ask, O you people, for the peace of Jerusalem. Those loving you, O city, will be free from care. May peace continue within your rampart, freedom from care within your dwelling towers. For the sake of my brothers and my companions, I will now speak. May there be peace within you. And for the sake of the house of Jehovah our God, I will keep seeking good for you. So even as David, let all of us also continue to pray for the peace of God's organization. Let's keep seeking the good of our brothers the good of the organization which continues to provide things for our benefit because this organization is not of men but of God. Thank you.